Tom Petty said, the waiting is the hardest part. Tom's not alone. Since the fall of man, we're told all of creation has been groaning, waiting for deliverance. The psalmists and the prophets also cry out, how long, O Lord? As individuals, we feel the strain of waiting for ultimate deliverance, the return of Christ, and often for immediate deliverance from our suffering and trials, or even just simple delays in life that we experience so frequently. But of course, life is full of waiting uh, on the spiritual level, on the physical level, lots of waiting. And so the Lord tells us, wait on the Lord, be of good courage, and he shall strengthen your heart. What a good verse. And a great example of that is given in our text tonight. Genesis 8 is full of waiting, a ton of it. It shows day after day, week after week, month after month of just staying put and waiting to leave the ark. And I get antsy when my Amazon package doesn't come same day anymore. I'm like, two days? I'm not even buying that now. I'm not going to wait that long. As we go through these verses, try to imagine Noah going to the logbook each morning, scratching down another line on the tally. There would be about 377 of them before the end. Though Noah's family knew that God would bring them out, he had promised it, God did not give them an exit date. He didn't say, on this day, you're going to come out. He didn't say, you're going to be in here for 377 days, and then you'll get out. It wasn't a countdown for them. It was a count up. They, they were just waiting. They could trust in the Lord, but they had no day of departure. Only their heavenly Father knew the day and the hour when they would be delivered out of the ark into their new land. Sounds a lot like us. We'll see that some of their waiting took place while they looked out on dry land. I don't think I'd ever noticed that before uh, this time through. Imagine how difficult that would have been to stay cooped up in the ark. The ark was big, but it wasn't that big. I mean, yeah, it was 100,000 square feet, all three decks, but looking out on a dry world and yet waiting day after day. But these faithful eight had begun this adventure in submission to God, and they were going to finish the adventure the same way. Verse one says this, God remembered Noah as well as all the wildlife and the livestock that were with him in the ark. God caused a wind to pass over the earth and the water began to subside. The sources of the watery depths and the floodgates of the sky were closed and the rain from the sky stopped. The water steadily receded from the earth and by the end of 150 days, the water had decreased significantly. When God remembers, this is a term that's used frequently in the Bible, it means that he initiates a new miraculous saving act on behalf of his people. It's not that he was so preoccupied or busy with other things that they had slipped his mind the way that we forget about things and have to remember them. One of the most astonishing revelations about God in the Bible is that he, in all of his all-powerful omniscience, is thinking about you continually. He's thinking about me continually. Now, we cannot fathom a mind that can accomplish such a feat, to be thinking of all individuals simultaneously, continually. We can't fathom the kind of power it would require to hear and understand and parse all the prayers of all the world of all the moments of every day. And yet God can. It's revealed quite clearly. It's true. Psalm 139 was referenced tonight in our prayer time. Here's another verse uh, from Psalm 139. God, how precious are your thoughts to me. 
How vast is the sum of them? If I counted them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. That's not just hyperbole. That's true about God's love for you and for me and for the person sitting next to you. God is thinking about you right now. His thoughts and actions are specially concerned with human beings, right? We see that here. He remembered the people. Yes, he also remembered and had compassion and care for the animals and the livestock and everything on the ark, but it was the people he thought of first and most. I'm sure as the days rolled by, there were times when Noah thought, has God forgotten us? Are we just floating out here, a little speck in the blue? Have you ever seen, you know, uh, an image where they pull up, you know, a few thousand feet above a ship and, they, and you say, okay, now try to find the ship in the field of blue and it's impossible, it's a tiny little thing. And so Noah undeniably would have thought, Lord, are we ever coming out? But then one day something new happened. A wind started to blow. Why didn't God just snap his proverbial fingers and make the water disappear? He could have. And there are times in the scripture where there are dramatic, immediate happenings like that. When Jonah's thrown into the water, the sea immediately becomes calm. Uh, When Jesus gets up and rebukes the winds and the waves, it doesn't slowly turn off. It immediately becomes calm. And then they're immediately on the other far side of the Sea of Galilee. So why not? Why didn't God just take care of the water? Everything was dead, everything was done, right? Well, not everything was done. It may seem to us like it would be more efficient and better if God just acted like a genie. I remember when we would go down to Southern California to visit my grandparents, they would have Nick at Night on. Anybody remember Nick at Night? Some of you are old enough to remember I Dream of Genie when it was on for real. I had to watch it on Nick at Night, it was still awesome. But you know what, there's people here who don't know what Nick at Night is, so I feel good about that. So, and I dream of Jeannie was great. Jeannie would always do her little thing and then something crazy would happen. And of course, it would be a bunch of misadventures and comedic disasters. But God could do that. And yet he uses a slow process to dry out the earth. What wasn't finished that needed to be finished? Well, it was the work in the lives of Noah and his family. It is a biblical principle that waiting in faith produces strength in our lives. Isaiah chapter 40 says this, those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. And the prophet goes on to say that God acts on behalf of the one who waits for him. And so Noah waited. Verse four, the ark came to rest in the seventh month on the 17th day of the month on the mountains of Ararat. We simply don't know exactly where Noah's ark landed. Some say it's Turkey, some say it's Armenia. We can't be sure. There have been many expeditions into this region, many supposed sightings over the centuries. There's a whole lot of tradition involved, particularly in the country of Armenia. They're all about it. I learned this week that after the fall of the Soviet Union, since 1992, the Armenian coat of arms actually bears an image of the ark on top of a mountain. It's pretty neat. So they're deep into it. And there is something known as the Ararat anomaly. You can look it up, which was first photographed in 1949 by the US Air Force. It appears to be something encased in the snow cap of the mountain that is roughly boat shaped. But so there's a lot of, you can find Nat Geo went and tried to do a special. There's all kinds of stuff. I'm not trying to discount any of that. We just don't know for sure. 
It's possible that the ark will be discovered in the last days, but we shouldn't count on it or necessarily plan on it for a few reasons. First, the boat was made of wood. Yes, it was pitched inside and out, which would have helped to preserve it. But aside from the wear and tear of water and wind and ice and time, Mount Ararat is a volcano, last erupted in 1840. Pitch or no pitch, lava beats wood every time, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> Secondly, we're going to see that the ark was somewhat disassemblable. We're going to see Noah taking some parts apart. Perhaps he took the ark apart to build a home for his family. I probably would have. If you're a fan of the show Survivor, they land everybody on you know, the beach, they do a quick challenge, and then they send them to their, their home, their camps, but there is no camp. The very first thing they have to do is start building a shelter using the materials they have. And often they have to cut down beams and try to use what they can. If you had ready-made, like ready-to-go beams, would you cut down a tree to make new beams? You would just take that thing apart and make a house for yourself. Don't be so distracted by the wear of the ark that you miss the when of its landing, the 17th day of the seventh month. The late Ray Stedman points out this remarkable fact. Under Moses, God told Israel that he was changing their calendar. The seventh month became the first month. The Passover would be held on the 14th day of that month. Of course, that was the day that Christ was crucified. Three days later, he rose again from the dead, which on Noah's calendar would have registered as the 17th day of the seventh month, the day of the resurrection, as far as Bible speak goes. For thousands of years, God has been promising and proving his plan of salvation and that it cannot fail, and that this has been the plan from the beginning. It's woven all through the entire scripture. It's not something he's planning out as he goes along. God's not reacting or, to, or responding to things that are happening. He is working his providence through history, and what he said is going to happen is what is going to happen. It's been true since the beginning of human time. It's going to be true through the end of human time. His plan cannot fail. He's been showing us again and again throughout the millennia that he will keep up his end of things, that if we take refuge in Christ, he will deliver us safely to the eternal shore. The resurrection is the mountain that we can rest our lives upon, and we can know that it's true. He's been proving it since, since Noah's Ark, at least. Verse 5, the water continued to recede until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were visible. So tonight, I want us to start kind of marking. We, we were in the seventh month. Now we've already jumped to the 10th month. It's quick for us. How slow would that have been for people just sitting in a wooden box? After 150 days of bobbing around in the water, the ark was now stuck in a fixed place, no moving. They haven't heard any messages from the Lord. He hasn't appeared to them. And so they're waiting here two and a half months, watching peaks slowly rise up out of the water. Verse six, after 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made. What might they see out this window? A lot of water and probably a lot of death, if we're being frank. The floating carcasses of men and animals would be a grim proof of what sin does to a life and to our world. Verse seven, and he sent out a raven. It went back and forth until the water had dried up from the earth. And he sent out a dove to see whether the water on the earth's surface had gone down. But the dove found no resting place for its foot. 
It returned to him in the ark because water covered the surface of the whole earth. He reached out and brought it into the ark to himself. Throughout the flood narrative, we've noticed that the Lord already was making a distinction between clean and unclean animals. Now we as readers are witness to this interesting experiment where Noah sends out one clean bird, a dove, and one unclean bird, a raven, hoping to glean some information about the state of the world beyond what his eyes could see. Bible teachers like Charles Spurgeon and Ray Steadman highlight the devotional treasures in Noah's birdwatching experiment here. So you're a Christian, safe in Christ, knowing that God will see you through. Meanwhile, you're gonna have to interact with the world. The Bible explains that as you do, as you live this life on this side of eternity, you've got two mutually exclusive natures. The sanctified spiritual nature, that is if you're born again, God puts that new nature in you and it is represented by the dove in this little parable. And the old sinful nature, sinful nature, we call it the flesh or the carnal nature, the proclivity to give in to sin, to give in to temptation, to go against God's will. It's represented by the raven. And what we find as we read through the Bible and through the examples of God's people in the Bible, or when we read passages like Romans 6, 7, and 8, we find that even though we don't have to give in to the old nature as Christians, we can. And we can put either of these two natures into operation. How are we going to react and behave and move about in the world? Are we going to use that mind of Christ, that heart of Christ, that new nature of Christ, or are we going to allow the old man, that body of death, to call the shots for us? The raven shows us that the flesh is content to be apart from Christ. It will fly about and rest on anything it can, no matter how unstable or rotten it is. Of course, a raven, a real raven, will eat carrion. It will eat dead flesh. And Bible commentators point out that's probably what this raven was doing, flying from floating carcass to floating carcass, eating bits of the rotting flesh. Even when proper nutritious food is available to us in the ark, the flesh, the old nature, that raven, I'll stay out here and be with the dead stuff. Our old nature is content to fill itself with the death and the garbage that floats by in the world. But then we have the spiritual nature, the spirit of life in Christ by which we have been set free, the Bible says. This nature is clean and righteous. It's represented by the dove. It goes out and interacts with the world, but always returns back to find sustenance and shelter in the ark, which is a picture to us of Christ. It does not rest on any floating carcass, but keeps to its proper abode in the Lord until he finally brings it out into the new creation. So a great little devotional look at this bird watching uh, situation. Verse 10, so Noah waited seven more days and sent out the dove from the ark again. And when the dove came to him at evening, there was a plucked olive leaf in its beak. So Noah knew that the water on the earth's surface had gone down. After he had waited another seven days, he sent out the dove, but it did not return to him again. So again, notice the waiting week after week after week. It would have demanded immense patience and peace and resolve. Some have scoffed at the idea of the dove finding an olive leaf if a global flood is to be believed. How could a tree have survived and grown in such a way in such a short time? In actuality, Theophrastus, who's considered the father of botany, he dates to about the third century BC, 
He wrote, he's one of these guys that wrote like a billion page book about like trees and stuff. So he's the father of botany. He records in his inquiry into plants that olive trees uh, can leaf while submerged in water. He recorded that from the, Red, uh, from the Mediterranean Sea. Later, Pliny the Elder, a Roman, reported the same thing in one of his great works of literature. The results of Noah's experiment because it is an experiment he's doing. He's, he's taking soundings. What's going on out there? How's the water going down? And we see the progression, right? At first, the dove doesn't come back. Then it comes back with an olive leaf, right? It, we see this progression. Clearly, the water is receding. The results of the experiment would have suggested that it's time to leave the ark, right? The dove left. It's good to go. The dove was gone. The trees were above water. It must be time to leave. Apparently, Noah didn't think so. Look at verse 13. In the 601st year, in the first month, on the first day of the month, happy new year, the water that had covered the earth was dried up. Then Noah removed the ark's cover and saw that the surface of the ground was drying. By the 27th day of the second month, the earth was dry. We see that Noah could at least partially dismantle the ark. It was wonderfully and beautifully engineered. From inside, he could take certain parts uh, down and away. He removes this cover. And what does he see when he looks out? Okay, it's over. It's all done. The earth is dry. So what happens? He still waits from the new year to what we would call February 27th. What are you waiting for? You're done. It's over. What is he waiting for? If we were at the family meeting, do you guys have family meetings? Family meeting. We do a funny thing. We, if we call a family meeting to decide what movie we're going to watch for pizza movie night, call a family meeting, right? And we all, okay, family meeting, okay, present. And everybody goes around as present. And then someone someone says that the kitty is absent because our cat never wants to have anything to do with us. She's always somewhere else. So the cat's always absent. But so if we would have had the family meeting among these eight people, wouldn't, I would have said, okay, the land is dry. The dove is gone. The trees are working. We're ready. We're good to go. Our earthly circumstances cannot be the compass of our life's journey, even though they're so palatable to us and, and they're so dramatic to us. Well, here's the circumstances around my life right now. And so that should be the decider of what I do, when I go, when I act, when I do these different things. But our earthly circumstances are a terrible compass for a spiritual life. Noah stayed put. Why? Because he loved the ark? Even if he liked the ark, there's no way he still loved it after 377 days. Because he was afraid to go out? No, Noah wasn't afraid to leave the ark because he hadn't been told to go out. That's why he stayed. God had told him to go into the ark and Noah was going to stay until he was directed by God's word to go out of the ark. But the bird, the leaf, the ground, look with your own eyes, it's ready to go. But Noah said, no, the Lord decides when I go. The Lord shut us in and the Lord's gonna have to tell us when we move out. And what an amazing, amazing statement and demonstration of godly patience and faith, faith here. This is what it means to wait on the Lord. Despite circumstances, despite what would have been natural human desires, they waited 
for the Lord to speak. And he did in verse 15, God spoke to Noah, come out of the ark, you, your wife, your sons and your son's wives with you. Bring out all the living creatures that are with you, birds, livestock, those that crawl on the earth and they will spread over the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah, along with his sons, his wife and his son's wives came out all the animals, all the creatures that crawl, all the flying creatures, everything that moves on the earth came out of the ark by their families. My question again would have been, Lord, top of the mountain? We weren't planning on living on the top of a mountain. And I don't think they did live on the top of a mountain. We were gonna see Noah plant a vineyard, right? So Lord, why did you drop us on top of a mountain? I didn't have a rudder in this thing. I don't have GPS on this thing. Can you imagine the difficulty in relocating everyone down thousands of feet of elevation? That's what they had to do. I remember years ago, we had to move um, our old upright piano. It was one of the tall ones and it weighed um, like four or 500,000 pounds, okay? And so we had to move our piano out of uh, the house we were in, which had a raised foundation about as high as the stage, three steps up and down. And we all almost died. I almost killed David Brooks. I like split, I split his face open right here because we like lurched in the corner hit him. It was the worst. Now imagine taking all of your earthly possessions and probably disassembling these huge beams of the ark and taking them down even 5,000 feet of elevation. What, what's up with this? The life of a servant of God can be very demanding. You guys know this. Now listen, even though there's a lot of uphill effort and a lot of downward drag, we know that this is true, that when we serve in the power of the Spirit, we discover that God's yoke is easy and his burden is light. Noah doesn't complain. He doesn't say, I can't believe this. He doesn't do what I would have done and like file a grievance and say, could you move the boat like down to, to sea level, to the, the valley floor? That would be great. Because when we're working in the power of the Spirit, we can say to those mountains, hey, mountains move and they'll move, right? Now, that doesn't mean that Jesus wants us to go out there and start barking at the Rockies or the Sierra Nevadas. But it does highlight the fact that when we are doing things in the power of the Spirit, those things which in the power of the flesh would seem impossible and seem uh, a terrible burden and seem like they just can't be done or it's just too much effort, all things become possible in our, in our walk with the Lord. But the Christian life serving God, it is a demanding thing. Now, when we do so according to God's will and in the power of the Spirit, Jesus is true and right that his yoke is easy, his burden is light. That doesn't mean that we all just sit around doing nothing all the time. That, that's not, it doesn't mean that, that the serving in the Christian life is always going to be a physically convenient and a physically easy life. Verse 20 says, then Noah built an altar to the Lord. He took some of every kind of clean animal and every kind of clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. If you had survived the end of the world and spent more than a year on the ark, what's the first thing you would have done when you got out? Paul McCartney once saying, if I ever get out of here, thought of giving it all away to a registered charity. Yeah, we'll see. And all I need is a pint a day, he says. Ironically, Noah's gonna head towards a pint a day here in chapter nine. We'll get there. But on this day, the first day coming out of the ark, the very first thing he did was go down, build an altar and hold a worship service. What a beautiful thing. Now, I usually think of it as a lamb or two. 
uh, you know, the typical offering. So they slaughter a lamb and offer it, but that's not what the text says. Notice what it says, some of every kind of clean animal and bird. And so this was a very large, very costly, time-consuming offering, quite the worship service. Having looked out the window all those weeks, Noah would have reflected on the fact that his sin also deserved judgment. He was made righteous by God's grace, but he wasn't sinless. He wasn't perfect. That's going to be made abundantly clear. And we're thankful that we see, okay, he was a real person. He made mistakes just like we tend to make mistakes. But he deserved judgment just like everyone else had. As James Montgomery Boyce points out, Noah still here comes to God as a sinner. He doesn't come out of the ark and say, well, I'm the righteous one, so we're good. I'm like perfect like Adam was before the fall. No, he comes out and he says, man, I, I need to... I'm gonna renew my commitment to the Lord right here, right now. I'm gonna worship God. I'm gonna thank him for saving me. I'm gonna bring an offering and a sacrifice to him to demonstrate my love to him, to demonstrate my fidelity to him, to demonstrate that I understand that he is holy and I am not, and that I exist because of his grace and that he saved me because of his grace and that I wanna follow after him and obey him. Verse 21 when the, Lord smelled the, uh, sorry, when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, he said to himself, I will never again curse the ground because of human beings, even though the inclination of the human heart is evil from youth onward. And I will never again strike down every living thing as I have done. The sad reality is that after all of this, the flood may have wiped the earth's surface clean, but it didn't wipe the human heart clean. Who's, who's God talking about? The only people left are Noah and his family and those that would come through them. The human heart was still sinful. Sin would still continue to spread and bear its fruit, even in the lives of God's people. Despite the persistent pollution of sin, God would be gracious still, more and more, more gracious than we deserve. Here he makes a promise, not dependent on us as people, thank heavens, but dependent on him. He says, hey, I promise. I know what human beings are about. I know what the state of their heart is. I know that they are sinners. I'm going to show grace and mercy. I'm not gonna do this again. And he puts all of the dependence and all of the weight on his side of the agreement. The other lovely thing about this verse is how God is pictured enjoying the aroma of the sacrifice. So often I think of God seeing us or hearing us. Those are things that we can do from far, far away, right? I can hear you know, I can hear Mr. Nava on the other side of the soccer field on Saturdays. His voice just carries really great. I can hear, always hear Alex when he's coaching or when he's officiating. I can see people from pretty far away, even when there's smoke in the air. But what about smelling? Smelling requires nearness. Some of you may have BO right now, but I can't smell you. Let's put it positively. Some of you have perfume on. I can't smell you. Now, if I was sitting next to you, I'd be able to smell you. Smelling requires nearness. God the Father, of course, is spirit. He doesn't have a nose, but here he paints himself as being close enough to us to breathe in the perfume of our offering. 
And it wasn't the meat that God loved to smell. It was the hearts of his children. That's what he was close to, close to the hearts of these people who are worshiping him. And the praise coming out of their hearts through their worship, through their offering, the Lord smelled it. And he says, man, that is a pleasing aroma, a, a, a smell of valuable praise to me. And it, and it warmed his heart. It made him so excited. God is constantly describing himself as near to us and drawing us ever closer. He shows himself inhaling our praises and inhabiting our praises and living in our hearts and speaking softly to us, something you have to do while close by, and holding us in his very hands. These are the images that God uses to describe what he is in proximity to you, his nearness to you, his love for you, his tender affection for you. And that should be the thing we keep in mind as we worship, that we consider God's real, true, personal, active love for each of us and consider what he has done to save us from the wretchedness of our sin and how great he is. And if we do that, if we keep that in mind, how could our worship be lifeless or mechanical? How could we be satisfied with giving God the bare minimum? No, realizing these truths about the Lord will invigorate our worship and our offerings to the Lord so that they will be full of sweet-smelling savor the way that Noah's offering here was. Verse 22, as long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, and day and night will not cease. So the adventure closes with a poem here promising God's faithful perpetuation of creation. The flood was over. The earth would remain until the end of all things. But now Noah would have to begin a new phase of waiting. He had more than 300 years of life left. He'd have to wait for trees to grow, wait for crops to come in, wait for herds to calve, wait for grandchildren to be born. Like, like we all experienced, there'd be a whole lot of waiting as he continued to walk with God. And the same is true for us in this life. As we wait, wait for the Lord's return, wait for the Lord to direct us, wait for him to accomplish certain works in our lives. Maybe wait for him to bring you a spouse or wait for him to bring you children or wait for him to show you, you know, what your gifting or your calling in the church is gonna be. Wait to show you what your career is going to be according to his will. As we wait for these things, we can choose to not just wait in anguish or wait in disappointment, to, but to, as the Bible says, wait on the Lord and to be of good courage. We can remember that in the waiting, God is with us and wants to show us things and speak his words to us and use us to further his plans. He wants to build us up often through waiting. The Bible says that the Lord strengthens us through waiting and that for those who wait on the Lord, he acts on their behalf. And so he often wants to build us up through waiting. And as he does so, we can walk with him and work with him and worship him until the Lord brings us out of this life and into the new creation he's saved us for, because those who wait for the Lord will inherit the land. That's what God's word says in Psalm 37. So you may find yourself in a time of waiting. If not now, you will be soon. Wait on the Lord, be of good courage. For those who wait on the Lord will inherit the land.